Welcome to the September 4th and 5th episode of the Enjoying the Bible podcast. Uh, I'm Matt Ellis, and I'm the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. And I do apologize that this is coming to you late. Um, it's it's just going to happen uh, probably more times than I care to account uh, throughout the rest of the year. It's it's just getting busy, but I will try to faithfully get these out. They just may, may be a little bit late, so thank you for your patience. Um, the reading for September the 4th, um, and if you're following the Bible reading uh, plan, uh, then you already know this, but, uh, but the reading plan for the 4th is Psalm 143 through 145 and 1 Corinthians chapter 14. But the reading for the 5th, September the 5th, is Psalm 146 through 147 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, what I'm going to try to do in this podcast is get through both of those chapters, 1 Corinthians 14 and 15. So I'm not going to be able to go verse by verse, uh, but I will try to give a few key points and uh, some things to kind of help you to make a little bit of sense of some of the things that are in this chapter. I hope you're ready. Let's get started. First Corinthians 14. Now, one of the things that we have seen in this letter, which is probably Second Corinthians, um, and we've talked about that before, it looks as if First Corinthians really is at least the second letter that was written, and there appears to have been a, quote, harsh letter that was written after this, and then what we call 2 Corinthians was written, which would mean that it could be 4 Corinthians. <laughs> so hopefully you're not confused with that, but um, what the Apostle Paul is doing in this letter is he's just trying to clarify. He's trying to calm things down uh, in the church. Uh, the church is just, it's chaotic. I mean, it, they're tolerating sin, they're arrogant, They've got all sorts of things that are that they're doing and allowing. They're exercising their freedoms, uh, regardless of whether or not it harms a fellow believer. I mean, everything's just chaos. And it's like Paul in his letters is stepping into the room and saying, order. And then he, he proceeds to give step by step of how it is that order can be obtained. And so what he's doing in 1 Corinthians 14 is he's going back to spiritual gifts. He uh, talked about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Then he went to the highest gift, the gift of love. And it is a spiritual gift, right? Because in the book of Galatians, Paul says that the fruit of the Spirit, not fruits, it's not plural, all nine of those are the one singular fruit of the Spirit. And the first of those um, fruit is love. And so he talked about love as the spiritual gift that they ought to desire to obtain and uh, celebrate and enjoy and exercise with each other. But now he gets back to um, spiritual gifts in verse 14. And basically, verse 14 is it leads us to believe that some of the chaos in the church at Corinth was because of their overuse of the gift of languages or tongues. Uh, in your translation, it probably says tongues. The Greek word is glossa. It literally means tongue, but it generally means language. And so I wish that uh, the translators would have translated it into language or languages. 
because that's what's being talked about here. It's the supernatural ability to speak in a language that you have never studied before. It is not Babel. It was never intended to be Babel. Um, it, it sounds as if in their culture there was a babbling, chaotic sort of confused speaking of not languages, but just gibberish. And maybe some of that came into the church at Corinth. Um, but that's not the same gift as what we saw God, through the Holy Spirit, give to Peter and the disciples in Acts chapter 2, where they were able to speak the gospel in languages and dialects even that they had never studied before. That's the gift of languages, the gift of tongues. And so even here, Paul is speaking into it and saying, you know, I, I just want you all to know, and, the, and basically this is a summary, saying, I just want y'all to know that as beneficial as it is to speak in languages, it's better if you prophesy. And so the gift of languages, I just explained to you what I believe that is. What's the gift of prophecy? Because that's the gift that's being celebrated in 1 Corinthians 14. It seems as if the gift of prophecy was the ability to speak on God's behalf. Um, they didn't have the New Testament, you know. They they just had a letter here. Maybe they've got this letter now, the the letter that we call First Corinthians, but uh, they didn't have the New Testament as we know it. And so, it Jesus had come, and it was they were now in a time of a new covenant. It wasn't the old covenant; it was a new covenant, and so it was a message on top of and an explanation of what the Old Testament said. And so there needed to be those that spoke truth into the New Testament churches. They needed to stand up. There needed to be a way for people in the church to be able to understand, okay, who was Jesus? What did he do? Why did he do it? How? What does it matter to us? How do we apply and appropriate those truths? And how should we live and how should we think? Right, All of these things and more are necessary for New Testament believers, but they didn't have the New Testament like we've got it. It was being written. And so it seems as if the gift of prophecy played into that. This is God's Holy Spirit moving through an individual. They would stand up and say, I have a word from the Lord. And so everybody would sit down and listen, and this person would speak. Now, one of the things that we do see, and let me see if I can find this verse... Um, the verse is given in, let's see, verse 29, two or three prophets should speak and the others should evaluate. You see that word evaluate in verse 29? This makes it clear that simply because somebody stood up and say, I have a message from the Lord, doesn't mean they actually had a message from the Lord. Other people were to sit back, listen, compare it to what they knew of Scripture, the Old Testament, right? To make sure, because the New Testament is not foreign to the Old Testament. It builds on the Old Testament. It's consistent with the Old Testament, but it is more than the Old Testament. And so they would look at the Old Testament, and they would take into consideration, is this really something that the Lord is saying and would say to us? And so the gift of prophecy was something that they did. Now, do these gifts still exist? Do they still exist? Well, we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that says, whether there's tongues, they will cease. Whether there's prophecy, it will come to an end. But then Paul says, when that which is perfect is come. So 
We talked about that in 1 Corinthians 13. What is the perfect that is to come? I believe that's when Jesus comes back. And so I believe that the gift of tongues or languages and the gift of prophecy and some of the others, I think they can still, God can do whatever he wants to do, and they can still be present. They can. I, However, I do believe that they were primarily intended for the first century church while the New Testament was coming into um, existence. While God, the Holy Spirit, was writing his word, um, the gift of prophecy was, okay, you know what, while we're waiting on the New Testament to be written, let me tell you what God is saying. Or while there's a world of lost people out there that need to be saved and there's no missionaries out there because this news is all brand new, let's speak in tongues. And the Holy Spirit gave them the ability to speak in languages. I believe now, because not only times are different, but we've got the New Testament. And so I believe that on Sunday mornings, I get up and prophesy as the pastor of the church. But what that means for me is that I've got my finger on Scripture, and I'm saying, this is what God is saying, and I'm pointing to the Scripture. And there's no debate about what God has said because it's right there in black and white, and everybody's got their own Bibles, and everybody knows that what I'm saying really is a word from the Lord because I'm speaking it from His Word. And so I believe the gift of prophecy primarily has changed still exists. It's just different. The gift of languages. I believe that God can still do what he wants to do, but I do not believe that it's prevalent now um, because the gospel is getting out. Christians are in every nation, and so it's, it's unnecessary. It's unnecessary. God can still do what he wants to do, but I don't believe that it is nearly as prevalent as it was in the first century. I've got uh, charismatic friends Charismatic pastors who are uh, one who's who's a good friend of mine. Um, I disagree with the gift of languages, but we're still friends um, because I do not believe that that is something that rises to the level of heresy or anything like that. It's just a misunderstanding of. Um, my view is that he misunderstands, and he probably thinks that I misunderstand. But you know what? That's We look at Scripture, we come to our convictions, and as long as we believe that we have done due diligence, we've gotten into God's Word, then we come to our convictions, and then we prioritize and realize there are certain things that are non-negotiable. You tamper with who Jesus is, you tamper with the gospel, that's non-negotiable. But if you talk about some of these secondary and third issues, well, we're not going to do that in our church, but we can still be friends with people who do that in other churches. So anyway, just wanted you to know about that. Now, there is one other thing that we see in this chapter, and it is at the end. It is at the end of, uh, of this chapter, and it's the passage, one of the two passages in the New Testament about women keeping silent in the church. So we get to verse 33, the second part of verse 33, as in all the churches of the saints, the women, verse 34, should be silent in the churches for they're not permitted to speak, but as, are to submit themselves as the law also says. If they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, since it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Or did the word of God originate from you or did it come to you only? And so, you know, he talks about 
women being silent. And I'm telling you that there is no shortage of men who are chauvinists, male chauvinists, who thump this verse and demand that women keep silent in the church. I tell you, I was a member of a church once. I love the people there, but I believe that at least at that time they grossly misunderstood uh, what the Bible has to say on this issue. I'll never forget, there was a woman uh, who happened to be in a business meeting, and she had recently moved her membership to the church, and she raised her hand to make a motion. It was actually voted, uh, actually someone in the congregation, one of the men, um, said that they moved to strike her motion because uh, the church did not allow females to make motions. Oh my goodness, I, I, I about flipped the lid. <laughs> Not because I want to throw Scripture out, it's because I believe that uh, they misunderstood what the Scripture says. So what does this mean? Well, we're not going to dig deep, although I would love to do that. But right now, just to try to keep two chapters in about a 35 to 40 minute podcast, let me let you know that when it says the women, uh, in verse 34, the women should be silent in the churches. Well, silent, what does that mean? Well, if you go to verse 28, it says that those who are prophesying, actually, what? It, what let me go back to verse 28 just to make sure I'm quoting it correctly. Back to verse 28, it says, but if there is no interpreter, so it's the one speaking in tongues, if there is no interpreter, that person is to keep silent in the church and speak to himself and God. So what does that mean for the person who is... Um, Speak, wants to speak in tongues, but there's no interpreter, so they're told to be quiet. Does that mean they can't say anything? No. Does that mean they can't pray? No. Does that mean they can't make a motion in a business meeting? No. It just means don't talk in tongues unless there's an interpreter. So when, when you look at silent, you have to understand what's the Apostle Paul saying in verse 28 regarding the one that desired to speak in tongues, but there was no interpreter. Silent just meant don't speak in tongues, but you can do the other stuff. That's what silent meant. So what does silent mean in verse 34? Well, when you go back to chapter 11, verse 5, you realize that women in that church were allowed to pray and prophesy so long as their head was covered. And if you look at the context, that is in the context of when they showed up for church. And so I believe that a woman can pray in a mixed congregation certainly can pray in a mixed congregation, even at that time when the gift of prophecy was uh, was in full swing in the first century, that there was room, according to that passage in chapter 11, verse 5, and the verses around it, even women could prophesy. And so what does silent mean? Well, silent means that women who are married are encouraged not to speak. Because in verse 35, it says, if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands. And so Paul isn't talking about the women that aren't married. He's only talking about the married women. And so really, he's not talking about women as a, as necessarily as a, as, a, as a gender that is to be suppressed. That's not what he's saying. He's just looking for groups to say, okay, you tone it down. Okay, you tone it down. Once again, he's gone into a church that is chaotic, and he's trying to tone it down. 
And I'm telling you, there are men, one of the things that frustrates me to no end is the inconsistencies. And I know I've got them in my own life, but it's easier to see inconsistencies in others, isn't it? And I know that in, in churches that I have either pastored or I have attended, uh, in some of them, it's been absolutely forbidden. I remember in a church that I grew up in, one of the churches I grew up in, uh, my uh, dad uh, actually, my dad was a pastor there. My dad was out. I think he was preaching revival services or something like that. And he got word from somebody else about who to bring in. He didn't know this guy. But this guy came in and preached for my dad, and I happened to be there. And uh, he called for a little prayer circle up at the front of the, the, the sanctuary, and his wife prayed. And our treasurer, the treasurer of the church at that time, actually spoke up and said, we don't allow women to speak in this church. One, I thought, how stinking rude was that? <laughs> but second of all, even as a teenager, I was thinking, give me a break. You let women get up and sing songs as long as there's music in the background. Apparently, something magical happens when music plays, and a woman can entertain and can uh, take the full attention of the church for about four or five minutes as long as that song is being sung. But then whenever the music stops, she needs to shut up. She needs to sit down. That was the mentality. It was so hypocritical. It was so inconsistent. Whenever I look at this passage, this passage is not a wholesale telling women to be quiet. It is saying women in the context of all of this craziness with the speaking in tongues and the prophesying. I've already told those if they're wanting to speak in tongues and they don't have an interpreter that they're not to speak in tongues. They can't do it. They're to be silent, not speak in tongues. Women, I would encourage you... And what he says here, women, I would encourage you, those of you that are married, I'd like for you all to tone it down a little bit. And if you've got something going on, if you've got a question, then ask your husband when you get at home. So he's not looking down on women. He's not saying that they cannot participate in the worship service. Now, certainly there are roles that only men can fill. I believe the Bible is so clear that only men can fill the office of pastor. And I really believe the office of deacon. Um, I can see where some would uh, look at something that we're going to consider when we get to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and say, ah, that's talking about deaconesses, but I, I'm, I'm not sold on that. And I really think that, uh, that God has called men to be, not uh, obviously pastors, the pastor, um, but, uh, but also to be the deacons. But as far as involvement and speaking and praying and that sort of thing, the Bible does not forbid that. And uh, we're going to see another passage when we get to what Paul wrote to Timothy and um, come to understand a little bit more clearly uh, what Paul was saying. Okay, so as we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we come to the chapter that primarily speaks about the resurrection. Uh, it begins with uh, the, the clear word of the gospel and um, talks about witnesses, and then it gets into talk about the resurrection. So regarding the gospel, if you look at verses 3 and 4, says uh, he, he says this, for I passed on to you as most important what I also received. And so what did he receive? Well, who did he receive it from? Well, when we look at what it was that he said, 
this very well could have been some of the things that Jesus taught him. And yes, I do believe that Jesus actually met with um, the Apostle Paul. In fact, uh, the book of Acts makes it very clear that Jesus is the voice that spoke from heaven saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me when Saul was on the road to Damascus to imprison and eventually kill some of the Christians? Uh, So I believe for three years, I think um, the Bible bears it out for three years that Paul was in the wilderness and that could simply mean that he just went out into the the region east of Damascus, uh, which um, could be called Arabia, at least at that time it was still called Arabia, and so he wouldn't have had to go down to what we call Saudi Arabia, but he was out in Arabia, and I believe it was there that he hammered out what the message of the gospel is, and what it is that the new covenant is, and why Jesus came, and why it mattered, all of these things that fill his letters to the church at Rome and the church at Corinth and and everywhere else. But I believe that Jesus also was there actually speaking with him and teaching him. In what form, we don't know. Was just Jesus there physically with him? He very well could have been um, because Jesus was even in the Old Testament. Physically, he showed up to Abraham on the plains of Mamre in Genesis 15 and so many other places. So um, so I believe that's where he received this from. He said, so, verse 3, So I passed on to you as most important what I also received. So what did he receive? Here it is. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Right? And Scriptures means the Old Testament. We now understand Scriptures means all of the books of the Bible, all 66. But as Paul was writing it, he was referring to the Old Testament. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, just as the Scriptures said that He would, uh, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And so, Christ dying for our sins according to the Scriptures, all you have to do is look at passages like Psalm, um, Psalm chapter, I believe it's chapter 22, verse 1. Uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is Psalm 22, 1, and then the rest of the Psalm is... It couldn't have been more clear that that psalm prophetically spoke about Jesus there on the cross. Uh, if you read Psalm, I mean Isaiah chapter fifty-three, specifically verse six, but if you read the whole chapter Isaiah fifty-three, you realize that the Old Testament was clearly uh, prophesying that there was one who would come who would die for the sins of others, and uh, then the Scripture also spoke about the, of the resurrection. And uh, then what Paul did in verses 5 and 6, and actually 7 and 8, you know, 5 through verses 8, Paul said, you know, Church of Corinth, if you doubt the fact of Jesus' resurrection, if you doubt that he rose from the dead, and apparently Paul is building the case for the fact that not only Jesus did rise from the dead, but if he didn't, then the gospel is no good. Then all who have trusted in him have not gone to heaven, they've gone to hell. And so the reason that Paul seems to be making this case is is that people in the church at Corinth did not believe, or some of them did not believe that Jesus genuinely, physically rose from the dead. And so what he said in verses 5 through 8 is, hey, if you doubt my claim that Jesus rose from the dead as the scriptures said, then there's plenty of people who are still alive, and you can go ask them. 
verse 5, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the 12. So basically, Paul said, if you doubt Jesus rose from the dead, then take a trip to Israel and ask Peter and ask the rest of the apostles. Verse 6, then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. What's fall asleep means? That's, that's euphemistic language for some of them have died. But he said there were 500 people at one time. This is probably when Jesus was taken up uh, from earth to heaven in Acts chapter 1. Um, but regardless, uh, Paul said, there's plenty of people, there's hundreds of people that saw the resurrected Christ. Go ask them. If you don't believe that he rose from the dead, go ask them. Um, then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. He also appeared to me. And I don't think Paul is just referring to the road to, Dam the road to Damascus incident. And so basically, Paul is saying, if you doubt the resurrection, there's plenty of people that you can go ask, plenty of people you can go talk to uh, that have seen uh, Jesus risen from the dead. And so as he goes through the next uh, verses, uh, specifically verses 16 through 19, he talks about how that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead physically with his body, then our faith is worthless the gospel is not just that Jesus died on the cross for sin. It's also that he rose from the dead. I think that that testifies to at least two things that Jesus rose from the dead. One, that the atonement not only deals with sin, the cross, but it deals with the consequences of sin. What's the, the primary consequence of sin? What did God tell Adam and Eve? That on the day that you eat this, you will surely, what? Die. So the consequence of their sin was death. And so Jesus not only dealt with death on the cross, he dealt with death. I mean, he not only dealt with sin on the cross, he dealt with death by rising from the grave and defeating the consequence of sin. And so... Uh, the resurrection teaches us that Jesus has not only dealt with our sin problem, but also uh, dealt with the consequences of sin, the, the, the fullness of which we will not enjoy until we get to heaven where there are, is no longer any sin or consequences of sin. No death, no sickness, no pain, no sorrow, none of those things that come about because of sin. But also the resurrection was important because it was God's stamp of approval upon his son, and the work he had done on the cross. God raised him from the dead, testifying that he was approved by God. His work was approved by the Father. And so Paul said, if you believe that Jesus died on the cross for sin, but if you don't believe that he rose bodily from the dead, your faith is worthless. You are trusting in an impotent man who could not conquer death. And then we see another passage, and this is another time that Paul speaks of essentially the fact that Jesus is the second Adam. The second Adam, the Adam and Eve, and then you've got Jesus. Listen to verse 21. For since death came through a man, now who did death come through? It was Adam. Eve sinned first, but God held Adam responsible. Adam was the head. He was the leader. God holds leaders more responsible than those who follow their leadership. 
that's why in James 3.1, it says, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we will receive the stricter judgment. If you're in a position of leadership, you are more responsible. And so God didn't hold Eve responsible. He held Adam responsible. And so in verse 21, it says, for since death came through a man, through Adam, the resurrection of the dead also came through a man. Who's that? It's Jesus. Verse 22, for just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. And so Jesus is the second Adam. Adam lost paradise. He lost the relationship with God. He lost the privilege that he had to rule over the earth, and the earth would rightfully submit to, if we could say that about an inanimate object, um, submit to his authority and his leadership. Well, as a result of his sin, now the earth is in revolt and it's growing weeds and it's the animals have turned on him and he trying to, some try to kill him and that sort of thing. Well, Jesus came to fix what Adam messed up. Jesus is the second Adam. And so as Adam died, Jesus comes to take back what Adam lost and he conquered death. And so he says in verse 22, for just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Jesus fixes what Adam messed up. Well, then we get down to, I mean, I'm just skipping quite a bit because I'm trying to keep this podcast reason, you know, in a reasonable time. We get down to verse 29. And there's a really interesting verse, and it says this, Otherwise, what will they do who are being baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, then why are people baptized for them? Okay, so this is a problem, I believe, of a preposition. (laughs) This is a problem, I believe, that is rooted in grammar and in the preposition. Um, some have looked at this, and I believe it's the Mormons who are baptized for the dead, and that's why they keep up with genealogies and that sort of thing, because they believe that they can be baptized on behalf of those who have already died so that they can have them ushered into uh, a place of bliss. Um, that's not what this verse is talking about. Um the, the preposition for, for the dead, the preposition could also be because of, because of. And in fact, I believe that's what it should be. Otherwise, what will they do who are being baptized because of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, then why are people being baptized because of them? I believe the message of verse 29 is Paul saying that if you don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, and if you don't believe that there's a resurrection, then why are you following along in a faith that you don't believe really matters? Why are you being baptized because of them? You, you see... You, You see them and see their faith and see them trusting in the Lord, and then they die, and you don't believe that they're resurrected. Well, why are you being baptized? Why are you embracing a a religion or a relationship with the Lord 
become based on you know their lives if you don't believe that they've uh, actually risen from the dead and are are actually with the Lord. And so that's what he's talking about. He's not talking about being baptized so someone can go to be with the Lord who has already died. He is saying, why are you looking at the testimonies of people who are now dead, and because of their testimonies, you're embracing the faith, but you fail to acknowledge that their faith is was rooted in the resurrection of Christ and if you don't believe in the resurrection then why are you embracing why don't, why are you embracing a faith that they had uh, that's impotent so i believe that's what that's what verse 29 is talking about um just to really just tie things up beginning specifically in verse 35 uh through much of the rest of the the chapter um it's it, it's talking about the resurrection body. It's talking about the fact that uh, we are going to be raised and we're going to come back in a body that is remarkably similar to what we have, but it's not made for this earth. It's not. It's not capable of decay. It's not capable of, it doesn't have the sicknesses. It doesn't have the weaknesses. It doesn't have all of the stuff that our body has now. And uh, so Paul builds the case for how the resurrection body, and he and he goes to to nature itself and says, you know what, you plant a seed, and what comes out is something that is that is still very similar to that seed, but it is abundantly more, right? You you, you plant a you know, a kernel of corn in the ground. Well, what comes out of the ground is a whole lot bigger than that kernel of corn. And now you've got tons of kernels of corn on all of those corn cobs. And so that's that's what he's pointing to. Uh, what comes from the dead as that seed is put in the ground and it dies and then it produces life. Um, the life that comes as a result is something that's very similar but it is just phenomenally greater, and that's what he's pointing out. Now, one of the other things that I want to um, I want to point out is that uh, we are not we are not going to have spiritual bodies in that in that if we mean that spiritual means completely foreign to what we have now. Um, and one of the verses I think that's that's misunderstood is um, like verse 47. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man, Jesus, is from heaven. Like the man of the dust, so are those who are of dust. Like the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have been born the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. And so Paul is making a distinguishment between uh, the body we have now, this body of dust, and the body that we will have that resembles the body that Jesus has in heaven. And so some might be tempted to think, oh, it's going to be completely foreign to what we've got now. You know, this is a body of dust, and we're going to be up in heaven somewhere. And, and it may seem... Um, it, it, it may seem just spiritual and intangible and not real, but I, I would encourage you to think of at least two things. One, when Jesus went up to heaven from earth, 
in Acts chapter 1, he did not drop his body. He, his spirit didn't go to heaven and his body didn't drop to the ground. It didn't happen. Jesus took his body with him. And it's interesting, the 40 days after Jesus' resurrection, what he did in that body, one of the things he did is there at the seashore, he uh, wanted to prove that he was not a spirit, a merely a spirit or an aberration. And so he said, hey, do you have something to eat here? And so he ate fish in front of them. He ate fish in front of them. Um, whenever Thomas came in, the second, the second uh, week uh, that uh, Jesus... Uh, had been raised from the dead the second Sabbath, or the second um, Sunday, actually. Uh, he said, put your hand here in my side. So his body was touchable. It was real. It was physical. And he took that body with him to heaven. And so if heaven is just nothing but a spiritual reality out there somewhere, some kind of metaphysical sort of place, then Jesus is completely out of place because he's the only one that's got a body. Well, I would consider, I would ask you to also consider the last two chapters of Revelation that heaven is eventually, it's not yet now. We don't know where heaven is. I do believe it is a location. I don't, we don't know where it is, but it is a location. But eventually, it's clearly going to be a brand new earth. Revelation chapter. Uh, the last two chapters of Revelation tell us, begin with, And I saw new heavens and a new earth, for the former things had passed away. And then he describes some of what that new earth looks like. And he tells us that the new Jerusalem, in John 14, Jesus said, I go away to prepare a place for you. Well, the new Jerusalem is that place prepared that literally comes down to earth, and it is the heaven on earth. Heaven has literally come down to earth in the last two chapters, and that's what we're going to live on. So we need bodies. We're going to be on a new earth, but it's not going to be an earth that's decayed. It's not going to be this earth. It's going to be a brand new earth. And so we need a body. We need a body. Our bodies enable us to experience sensations. Our bodies enable us to smell. Our bodies enable us to, to touch and to be touched and to hug. Our bodies enable us to taste, you know, that got taste buds and everything. We need our bodies. I want, I want to have a body. Um, and uh, so we are looking forward to having bodies, and they are going to be heavenly bodies in that they are not corrupt, they're not sinful, they're not tarnished by sin, but they are very real and they're very physical, and we will enjoy those bodies forever. Now in verse 52, it says, the dead will be raised incorruptible. The dead will be raised. In another place, it says, the dead in Christ will rise first, and some speculate that, ooh, does this teach that those who are saved stay in their bodies in the ground until Jesus comes back? No, no. 1 Corinthians 15, the chapter that we've been looking at, is a chapter that um, is talking about our bodies, not our spirit. It's been talking about our bodies. It's been talking about the resurrection of the bodies. And so when it says the dead will be raised, it's talking about the dead bodies that will be raised. Because we are not just spirit, we are also body. 
It's it's not just that we have bodies for earth and in heaven we're going to get rid of our bodies. No, that's that's a false theology. That that theology was permeating the first and second century church. It was a theology that said your spirit is good, your body is bad. As soon as you die and get rid of that body, you're you're going to be a whole lot better whenever that happens because it treated the body as sinful and wicked. We don't believe that. We believe our bodies are sacred. It's who we are. And so when it says the dead will be raised, our spirit is already with the Lord, but our body is still here on earth. And so the body will be raised. The body will be raised. And the dead in Christ will rise. It's the dead bodies that will rise. Now, um, we, we can get into some other topics here. Um, you know, as far as, um, yeah, there's some people that, uh, you know, rather than having a body buried in the ground in a casket, they have, you know, their body is burned. Uh, and all they end up with is ashes. And those ashes get buried or scattered or any number of other things. And, and with some, they think that's horribly offensive because the body uh, is going to be raised. But I would argue that um, whether, whether a body was put in a casket or not, those bodies that are thousands of years old, like Abraham's body and stuff, it has long since gone back to dust. And who's to say that some Bedouin shepherd hadn't gone in that cave and didn't know who was there and swept it out and, you know, maybe camped out in that cave? I mean, and so who knows what happened at Abraham's ashes? Um, we're going to leave all of that to the Lord. As as far as, you know, what what condition our body is in when... Uh, our spirit is with the Lord in heaven, whether it is lost at sea and eaten by sharks or whether, I mean, any number of things. We, But we do realize that regardless of what condition our body is in, the Lord will do whatever he needs to to raise that body back up um, so that it can be turned into a heavenly body that we can enjoy um, connected with our spirit for the rest of eternity. And then Paul ends with this last verse. He said, therefore, since I've told you these wonderful things and we're looking forward to a resurrection body and being with the Lord, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. He said, I want you to know that since there is coming a time when your body will be resurrected from the dead, you will be with the Lord in a physical body. I want you to know that we've got exciting things to look forward to. So you stay busy in this life, working for the master, doing things for him, letting him live his life out through you, knowing that when you breathe your last breath, it only gets better. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you and we thank you so much for your word and thank you for the truth that's in it. Uh, Lord, while we are grateful for the parts of it that tell us how to live, we're also equally thankful for the parts that tell us how to think. Um, particularly as we think about the gifts uh, to the church. And not only that, Lord, even more relevant, I believe, to us 
uh, is the fact that uh, that we will have a body one day in your presence uh, to enjoy you and eternity forever. So Lord, help us to be busy doing the things that you desire for us to do. Help us to stay connected to you in, our, in relationships so that we're able to determine what it is that you want us to do and um, that we're relying upon your Holy Spirit to enable us to do those things, knowing that when we breathe our last breath, it only gets better. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope today's episode has helped you to understand and enjoy God's Word so that you can apply it in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Enjoying the Bible podcast is a ministry of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. Check us out at fbcpolkcity.com. See you next time.